0: I don't know about you, but I'm amazed every summer at how busy summers can be around here. And we have had a tremendous week and weekend. Uh, For those of you who have not heard, on Thursday evening, we had our summer youth series that is an area-wide gathering of different youth groups. Uh, We met in the fellowship hall over there. Uh, 400 plus of us got together and we sang. And Dustin spoke to us and it was just a wonderful evening. And if you haven't seen the schedule that Phil and Dustin and Christy have been keeping as they've been providing things for our young people to do. Uh, They really, they deserve our appreciation and our thanks. They're doing an excellent job. And uh, we have service projects that have been planned all weekend and special devotionals for the guys and for the girls. And we're very lucky to have all of them here working with us. It's really exciting to see all that's taking place uh, this summer. And so as as we think about the summer, as we continue to move through it, Hopefully tonight's lesson will be something that can keep us grounded as we focus on how to develop our faith and how to further develop ourselves, even as we think about taking teams to uh, relief efforts in Mississippi. We heard a wonderful presentation last Sunday evening on that, and I know several of you have decided since then that you want to be a part of that or you want to support that. Plans are now underway, getting together and firming up our dates for the trip to the Ukraine that's coming up in September. And so there are a lot of great things going on you know, to be involved in and to be a part of. And so we hope that everyone uh, can find their place as we serve together. And so as, as we begin this evening, I will tell you, we will be using PowerPoint. I'm going to try my very best to hang on to this uh, this evening. Uh, for those of you who weren't at the second service, I'm not really clear on what happened. But at some point, I just remember this came out of my hands and I had to catch it. Uh, a, a few have even called it a ninja-like move, and I don't, I've do not i never had any formal training or anything, so I hate to disappoint anyone, but uh, that's not something they teach you in public speaking class. I mean, you have to pick that up on your own, so I'll, I'll try to hold on to this as uh, we keep going. We're going to be studying a passage that's very similar to what we studied this morning, and so hopefully we can take some of the thoughts we had this morning and continue to develop them as we think about the status symbols that we look for as Americans. I don't know about you, but... I enjoyed playing games growing up, board games, any kind of the game of life from Monopoly or Risk or any kind of game you can think of. I enjoyed playing where you got to move along the different squares and you wanted to buy up properties and put hotels and houses on the different properties and you wanted to go through. And the goal was whoever had the most money at the end of the day was the winner. Whoever had the most possessions, whoever had the most stuff, that's how you determined who won. And it's interesting because you know as well as I do that in America we struggle with that same mindset. That whoever has the most toys at the end wins. You know, we struggle with that every day. And it's interesting to think about the crowd Jesus is speaking to. This morning we left as he was speaking to the group of Pharisees that he was meeting with on the Sabbath day. He's continuing to speak to that group. That group of Pharisees was asking him questions about the kingdom of God in Luke chapter 17. And when we come to Luke chapter 18, we see Jesus dealing with some of those same issues. Now, status symbols for them weren't the kinds of status symbols we might think of. Uh, One man proclaimed when he was asked what was wrong with America, he said, The trouble is that too many people are spending money. They haven't yet earned enough for things they don't need to impress people they don't like. And I don't know about you, but sometimes that applies to us, doesn't it? Wanting to let others see what we have, even though we don't need this, but we want to impress someone, even though that's someone we don't really like. And so it's just interesting to see that mindset that the Pharisees had with one set of status symbols and that we struggle with with a totally different set. Our status symbols might look something like this. Might be having a big house or having an office at the top of a big office building, being in charge of a large corporation. Maybe getting driven around in a fancy car. That's something that if we see these things in America today, we associate, that must be someone important. If we see a house like that, boy, someone who's a really high up in business or someone who's a politician, someone, someone who is very influential, uh, is riding in that car, is living in that house, is working in that office. You see, they were dealing with a whole different set Of status symbols. You remember this morning we talked about. They were concerned with where you would sit at a table. That was a big status symbol for them. Who got to sit at the head of the table. They were concerned about even who was eating with whom. Remember how important meals were. As fellowship times back then. That's why they were so upset when Jesus would eat with tax collectors and sinners. He was sharing a meal. He was breaking bread with them. That was a major form of fellowship. And so it's it's really intriguing as we look at Jesus speaking to these Pharisees. And to these other Jews that were following him. Even he takes that whole set of status symbols they were familiar with and he really turns it on its ear. He really, he really brings in a whole new set of spiritual status symbols. Things that should indicate a proper spiritual status. And we're going to look at a few of those. He really illustrates those by telling parables. And so we're going to begin with the very first verse of Luke chapter 18. If you read with me, he's going to begin speaking as he talks about the parable of a widow and an unjust judge. And we're starting in the very first verse of chapter 18. Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was a certain city, a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God, Nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. So, if I want to have a proper spiritual status, if I want to have a proper spiritual posture as I go to God in prayer, as I try to grow closer to Him, the first thing that God tells us to have through the words of Jesus is to have persistence in our spiritual life. Our spiritual life ought to be characterized by being persistent. And He tells a really interesting story to illustrate this. He tells the story of a widow who's dealing with a judge that doesn't care much about his fellow man, and he doesn't care much about the laws of God. Now, as we go through talking about these parables, you'll remember that this morning we looked at what the old law had to say. And the reason we keep bringing this up is because of the group of people Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to the Pharisees. Now, keep in mind, these were the answer men when it came to having questions about the law. When it came to the law of Moses, they had all kinds of answers to any question that might be asked. And so it's no accident that in this parable, Jesus chooses to talk about a widow. Because you see, in that culture, a widow, were, widows were often mistreated. As far as legal rights were concerned, they were almost one of, the, one of the cases that you could even consider a hopeless case if they didn't have children, and if they didn't have much money, if they didn't have, have many possessions, they often got overlooked. And that's why so much is written in the Old and New Testament about taking care of widows and orphans, people that weren't able to fend for themselves as well. And it's interesting because the Pharisees also would have been familiar with God's word. In Exodus chapter 22, verses 22 through 24, he sets out some pretty harsh penalties for mistreating those who are poor or those who are widows, mistreating those who are sort of on the fringe of society. God has always wanted to protect widows and those who were poor and those who didn't have as much and weren't able to fend for themselves. So it's no accident that Jesus chooses a widow to be the one that's going before a judge. And what's also interesting is this judge doesn't care... For man, and he's not concerned about following God's will. So we're dealing with someone in the story who, number one, doesn't care much about what God has to say about widows. So he's not going to care much for this lady. And then number two, he doesn't care much about his fellow man, so he's not going to have a lot of sympathy for her plight. And so the solution for this widow who's facing these obstacles is to keep coming and to keep coming. It's interesting in verse five, uh, when he talks about, Lest by her continual coming she weary me. As different translators have looked at this phrase, it's, it's the same phrase that can be used for, uh, but for she marks my eye or even, we would say, gives me a, a black eye. I mean, this was a serious persistence that this, this woman displayed. I mean, he was saying, she's going to wear me out with all of this. And so finally he relents. And the Lord says, hear what the unjust judge said. And shall not God avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He really find faith on the earth? When we think about persistence, one of the most awesome examples of that is a Chinese bamboo plant. And uh, as, as you think about different kinds of plants that we plant in our garden and that we water and that we watch grow, it's interesting to see some of the species of Chinese, of Chinese uh, bamboo plants that you plant and then fertilize and water for a year and then nothing happens. You fertilize and water it again and nothing happens And you keep doing that year after year until finally, they say in about the fifth year, in a period of about six weeks, it will sprout up, sometimes growing even as high as 90 feet. So the question is, did it grow 90 feet in that one year or in all the years that it was being fertilized? Well, obviously, it needed all of that fertilization every year, someone to take care of it, to remember where they'd planted it, to be caring for it every year, to be persistent. And it took time, it took years for that to grow, But finally, as a result of that persistence, it grew. You see, in our spiritual lives, we're going to run into roadblocks where it seems year after year we're doing the same things. We're doing all the right things. Nothing seems to be happening, but we just keep going and keep going. As Paul would write in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, if we will not lose heart, we shall reap in due season. And that's exactly what this widow was experiencing. She was persistent and she just kept going and kept plugging along. And I want us to think about the application this can have in our lives. You see, as this was happening, Jesus was speaking to Pharisees, and then as, this, as these words were written down, and the document, Luke, the Gospel of Luke, was passed around to the different Christians, they would have been reading this many, many years later. In fact, the earliest estimate for the writing of Luke would still place it decades after Jesus was on the cross. So the Christians that were reading this as it was being passed around would have known that it was years ago that Jesus died on the cross, it was years ago that, that he ascended into heaven, And that the apostles were told that he would come just as they saw him go. That there would be a second coming. And it had been years that they had been waiting for it. And don't you imagine that after a significant period of time, people were beginning to lose heart. That's why I think it's so powerful. Jesus provides this teaching. You should pray continually and not lose heart. Even today, years and years removed from the writing of this passage. We're still given that command and that obligation to pray and not lose heart. Sometimes it's difficult for us to think about the the second coming being within our lifetime. Sometimes it's difficult for us to think about that taking place in the near future because we've lived so many years. And yet, as Jesus says here in verse 8, He will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He really find faith on the earth? Our challenge is to act out the part of the persistent widow. To consistently and persistently be pursuing our spiritual growth. Not only that, but to be ready For that when the Son of Man comes, that he will find faith. It's interesting too for us to pause right here and look at the differences between God and this unjust judge. Because we have a difficult time really picturing God. Sometimes our perception of God can be a little bit skewed from the biblical picture, the, the the picture we're presented in the biblical text. Uh, Years ago, a study was done and people were asked to to identify God and you had people that were turning in an image of an angry mother when a report card came home or a, a state trooper that caught you speeding. I mean, these are all images that are in our mind of God just waiting for us to mess up and waiting to be disappointed with us. But it's important to see the differences between God and this unjust judge. The unjust judge didn't care about man and he didn't care about following God. God does care for us. In fact, 2 Peter uh, chapter 3 and verse 9 would tell us that he's not willing that any should perish. It's not God's will for any of us to perish outside of the Lord. It's his his desire, it's his wish that we would all come to know him. That we would live with him for an eternity. And I want us to think about that for just a second. Sometimes we almost have this picture that that Jesus was sent in the world and that he died for our sins. And that he gave us an avenue of salvation. But somehow we get this picture in our mind that that we've sinned and that God the Father is unhappy and Jesus gives us a way into heaven, but not everybody's happy about it. And we haven't really got everything settled. It was God's wish that Jesus would come into the world if if we're reading in John 3.16, that popular verse, when we keep reading, we see that God sent His Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might have life through Him. And so God sent Jesus into the world precisely so that we would have life in Him. And God wants our life eternally to be with Him in heaven. And I can know that because I know for whom hell was really prepared. When we read in the scriptures, when we read in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41, as Jesus is talking about the day of judgment, those on the right and those on the left, when he casts away those in the left who are cursed, he casts them into an everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now obviously, that's a very powerful passage dealing with judgment. And so I can make decisions in my life that could have me on the left-hand side, that could have me cast in to that everlasting fire. But that's not God's intention. God's intention is not that I spend an eternity there. That's, That's Satan's intention. That's Satan's battle plan. That's what he'd like for my life. But God's plan, he's not willing that any should perish. God wants me to be with him. And I think it's so important when we read this parable to understand that we want to be persistent. But God is so far removed from this picture of an unjust judge. God wants what is best for us. He wants us to spend an eternity with Him. The everlasting fire was created for the devil and his angels. Yes, that's a real reality. If I make a set of decisions that leads me down that path. But that's not God's will for me. That might be a choice I make, but that's not what God would desire. He desires that all men should be saved. And also, God responds uh, for, to our prayers out of love and care for us. This unjust judge was sort of responding to the widow out of frustration. But God responds from our persistence out of His love and... And his care for our lives. So the first thing I've got to have, if I want to have the right spiritual status, if I want to be in the right spiritual place, I have to be persistent. And it's interesting to look at the next parable that he tells. Remember, again, who he's dealing with. We need to keep remembering the audience, because that makes such a big difference when we read this text. He's talking to a group of Jews. In in chapter 17, the Pharisees were asking him questions. And he continues to speak these parables. And then in verse 9, also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. So he dealt with persistence and now he's moving on and he's dealing with humility. And listen to the parable that he tells them. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess, and the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus chooses a very emotionally charged comparison here. When he's talking to those people that were trusting in themselves that they were righteous, he chooses to compare a Pharisee whom, remember, would have been associated with the religious leaders. This was a person who knew the text. This was a person who knew the law. He decided to compare him with a publican, with a tax collector, someone that wasn't looked upon favorably. So he gets this emotionally charged comparison to make a point. And his point is that when we come to God in prayer, not only should, should we be persistent, but we have to be humble. We have to show some humility. The Pharisee, as he came before God, he came with pride. The other came with true humility. The tax collector realized his sinfulness. And the Pharisee really read his resume. I mean, he listed off the things that he did. He fasted twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And you can almost think about, as Jesus is saying these words, we can recall his words in the Sermon on the Mount, when he warned those who prayed on street corners so that everyone would hear their words, or those that that fasted in ways that everyone could see their faces drawn up and they knew what they were doing. Remember how he warned them that that was their reward in full? You can almost remember that saying as Jesus is speaking these words. You can sort of hear the echoes of that as he talks about a Pharisee who's so caught up in his resume that he's telling God essentially, thank you for making me, me. Thank you for all of the things that I've done. Thank you for all that I've accomplished. And it's so tempting sometimes for our human nature to want us to focus on what we've accomplished. It would be tempting for us even as a congregation to focus on all the good things that we've done rather than all the blessings God has given us. And what I'm so grateful for as I hear prayers led up here, as I I, I see mission trips taken, and as I hear the comments of people in this congregation, is that we are continuing to focus on God. I think that's outstanding because God is the one who's providing us all of the blessings we've been given. And so let's keep that up. Let's keep that humility. Because remember, whoever humbles himself on this earth will be exalted, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled. I heard a man once say that we have two choices. We have a decision to make between being humble or being exalted. We can pick one or the other. And whatever we choose, God will do the opposite in eternity. And just think about that for a minute. That's really what the text is saying, isn't it? If I decide I'm going to be humble on earth, then God will exalt me in eternity. If I decide I'm going to exalt myself on earth, then I will be humbled in eternity. And so we need to remember as we come before God to come before him with humility and not to get caught up in our own resume and what we might have done, services that we may have rendered. It's interesting to see that we can always do pretty well if we compare ourselves to other people, can't we? I mean, I can be doing pretty well if I get to choose who I compare myself to. And yet comparing ourselves to other human beings is never going to work out very well for us. Uh, The story is told about two composers, uh, Mascani and Tuscanini that lived at uh, roughly the same time period in Italy as they were composing, and Muscani was incredibly jealous of Tuscanini. He was jealous of all the attention he was receiving, and they were both very, very skilled composers, and so it was easy to see that he was upset with this other composer who was doing better and was more popular and was more widely known. And so both of them were asked to conduct at a charity function. They were asked to conduct certain pieces. And, and Musconi was, so, was so just incensed that Toscanini was going to be there too. He said, I'll agree to it on one condition. That you pay me exactly one dollar more than you pay Toscanini. I'm going to make more money than him. I want to make, make just, just, just one, one little notch above him. I want to be just a little bit better. And so in the American equivalent of what would be a dollar, Muscani, after this uh, performance, made one dollar. And Toscanini had done it for free because it was a charitable performance. So here Muscani goes in thinking, I'm going to get all this money. It's going to be even more than him. And he just ends up with a dollar. See, if we start comparing ourselves with people, there's going to be trouble. The only comparison that we can make that will help us maintain our humility is to do what the Hebrews author says in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, and that is to fix our eyes on Jesus. Have we fixed our eyes on Jesus? When we fix our eyes on Jesus, we see a man who Hebrews 4 and 15 tells us was tempted in every way as we were, yet was without sin. Have we fixed our eyes on Jesus? When we fix our eyes on Jesus, we see a man who John 13 says washed all of his apostles' feet, even the one who would betray him and hand him over to be led through a mockery of a trial and then crucified, the one who would deny him three times after saying he would never deny him, and the others who would not stand up for him, and even some who would be completely absent at the time when the Savior would have needed them most on the cross. Have we fixed our eyes on Jesus? Paul would say, when he's writing to the Philippians, that this Jesus was someone who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held on to. But instead he made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a servant. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Have we fixed our eyes on Jesus? You see, if we compare ourselves to Christ, we're always going to realize our shortcomings. We're going to be understanding exactly what the publican said as he said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And rather than focusing on our accomplishments, if we compare ourselves to the one who lived a perfect life and offered us an eternal home with God in heaven, we'll have a lot of different attitude. So I need to be persistent and I need to be humble. But then what I think has to be one of the most surprising things that Jesus would have done with his disciples happens next in the next few verses. In verse 15, then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. I think of this passage, and others like it, during vacation Bible school, or when we have the pew packers up front, or when we're taking Bible bowl teams, or when we're working with our young children. I think of the way that Jesus honored children. Because... His disciples were just convinced that these children were going to get in the way. Jesus was convinced that if we want to be spiritually sound, if we want to have the right status, we have to have a childlike faith. See, they were trying to help him out. Jesus was a busy man. He had many things that he had to get to, many people who wanted to talk to him and to learn from him. And he didn't have time for these children. At least that's what they thought. But Jesus wanted to say that anyone who doesn't accept the kingdom of God, like a little infant, will not enter it. And just think about the, the infants that were brought to him, the attitude a child has, the total and complete dependence. I learned this just a few weeks ago when, for the first time in my life, I was on a solo babysitting job for my one-year-old nephew. I'm not sure why, but my parents called me um, before that in you know, just told me, Andrew, you really need to be careful. You really need to be careful. You know, I said, I know, I'm you know, 24 years old, I know this, this. No, really, be careful. And the reason is because when you have a small child that you're dealing with, there's a total and complete dependence on the person who's taking care of them. And we're familiar with that. We're familiar with children who, who aren't able to, to feed themselves at a young age, they're not able to clothe themselves or take care of themselves. And unless we accept the kingdom of God in that way with a total dependence, a childlike faith, not childish, Now, Paul would say to the Corinthians that when he became an adult, he put away childish things. So not a childish faith, but a childlike dependence. A childlike dependence on God. I think that's a wonderful and a beautiful picture. It's hard for us to do sometimes, to be completely dependent on God. Sometimes we can hold on to those things we made excuses about this morning. We talked about the possessions and the work and the family. And we want to get our strength from those things. We need to have our dependence coming from God. So if I want to have a proper spiritual status... I'm going to be persistent. I'm going to be humble because I'm fixing my eyes on Jesus. And then I'm also going to be making sure that I have a childlike faith. So the next question that comes up is, what is your spiritual status? What is my spiritual status? What's interesting is there are a couple of other examples in this same chapter that give us some insight into that. The first person that we're introduced to that I want us to look at for just a few minutes this evening is the rich young ruler. Now, we're familiar with him. We use him often as we think about the difficulty with parting with riches in order to serve God. But look at just look at his attitude and some different aspects of this exchange that help illustrate this lesson. Now, a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I can't help but, but remember the the Pharisee that was talked about just a few verses ago that that talked about all the things he had done to God. You see, the attitude here is, what must I do? There's something I've got to do. Obviously, we have to work to obtain our salvation, but we need to understand that when we work and and we, we put ourselves into living the Christian life, that we're not earning our eternal reward. We're not earning eternal life. We couldn't earn that if we tried. But we're working in order to accept that gift. And so Jesus says to him, he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. And then he says, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. And there we go again, there's that that attitude of, I've I've kept these things, I've done what I need to do. And then Jesus asked him to take it to a deeper level. And he says in verse 22, when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful. He was very rich. So you have on one hand the rich young ruler, who as he comes to Jesus says he was ready to do anything it took to have eternal life. But when Jesus really got at something that touched his heart, when he really got at the core of his life, this young man walked away. Then we look later on in verse 35 that it happened as Jesus was coming near Jericho, a certain blind man sat by the road begging. And hearing the multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. So they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he cried out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those who went before warned him that he should be quiet. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, he asked him saying, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, that I may receive sight. Then Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Here we have a case study in two individuals. One who looks like he's got the correct spiritual status, doesn't he? I mean, he is wealthy, so obviously he's been blessed. He has power, he has some authority for being a young man, and he has kept all these commands from his youth. It looks like he's got the right spiritual status, and yet he goes away disappointed. Then we have, over on the other side, a man sitting by the road begging, who can't see. It seems as if he doesn't have the right status. He's sort of on the fringe of society, and yet he goes away blessed. I'm convinced it's because he displayed a lot of these characteristics we've been talking about. He was persistent, even when people tried to get him to back off. And, no, you don't need to bother him. It's almost like when they were...